0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, and anoint this room. Be with us. Guide us. Work through me to teach whatever you want to teach. Work through all of us to learn whatever you want us to learn, to grow in friendship with you, grow closer to each other and to you. Help us to um, ask all the questions we want to ask. Just be with us in a special way. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, you may have heard certain things like the interior life, or friendship with God, or union with God, and, and thought that seems very appealing, but yet you don't really quite know what the terms mean or you want to learn more in the topic of friendship with God, or how to grow in friendship with God, how to grow in God's blessings, and all those types of questions. This course is is ordered towards those answering those types of questions. It's uh, a Benedictine in nature, in the sense that uh, we're going to explore Blessed Columba Marmion primarily, who's a 20th century, early 20th century, Benedictine writer, who had a lot of beautiful things to say on the topic, and uh, we're going to explore other authors as well, um, but it's, it's Benedictine in that sense. But it's also, I think, simple. It offers some simple and broadly applicable advice that everyone can take away. It's a very practical course on uh, a topic called Spiritual Theology, How to Grow in the Spirit. Tonight, I want to put things in context. Um, So, just kind of see the view of the whole for a little while before we kind of get down into our topic. Please, you get to come all the way up. Welcome, Fred. So, it's important to maintain that view of the whole, otherwise you risk getting out, out of balance about something. So, today we put everything into context, and we put the rest of our conversations in context and then we go into greater depth after this, this day. And the context is kind of twofold. One, the objective divine plan. So hopefully God is willing this union with us, otherwise it would be absolutely ridiculous to try to seek it. Hopefully God is willing friendship with us, otherwise it wouldn't be such a bright thing to try to go out of our way to find friendship with him. So what is God doing on God's side is one key aspect of our context, so the objective divine plan. Then the the response is the second side of it, so we each respond to that plan. and We know the basic aspects of that, but again, it's worth putting that into context so that then we can see very clearly what is the interior life, what is the spiritual life, and where to drill down. That, in that aspect of the whole. So, the divine plan. I'm going to do this very quickly, since I assume that almost everyone knows these things. I'm just going to highlight key aspects of uh, really the divine economy in, in our lives of grace. Come on in and sit. You've got, unfortunately, well, up here if you want. Um, so, the divine plan. So, we believe that god the father the son and the holy spirit is a an eternal communion of gift of self and that he created out of gratuitous love for creation and then eventually he created adam and adam had a great friendship with god and yet was lonely and it's worth just recognizing that fact right away early on god created eve bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He had a real person he could respond to, share his thoughts with, share his life with, and Adam and Eve wanted more, despite their great friendship with God, which is also just worth noting. They, of course, fell, and we have the results of those fall throughout this world here, and um, we know the story goes on. Welcome, Phil. (laughs) we got a few others as well. And the story goes on. Eventually, God chooses Abraham so as to have a way to communicate to his people. And we have a chosen people at that point. We know that God then communicates a law to the chosen people and it gives them a way to follow God's ways. He starts to reveal who he is in his ways, and they start to do that, but they struggle. And we know that they struggle quite a bit, and eventually he sends prophets to remind them and to deepen this, and nonetheless, they continue to struggle. That's not to say that they weren't doing wonderful things. It's just to say that eventually, uh, we get the prophets who say, that God's gonna send a new heart and a new spirit. There's going to be a new covenant, says Jeremiah and Ezekiel, a new heart and a new spirit. And he's, he claims over and over again, this covenantal love is going to continue no matter what. He's going to be good to us no matter what, even as we struggle. But there is this newness to the message that we know in Christianity, and we know that in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, our Savior, to be the perfect example of humanity and the perfect teaching of human- for humanity. And in short, Jesus undergoes the passion, his passion, death, and resurrection on behalf of us. And we know the fruits of that very well. We know all about how heaven's been opened for us, and that we've been given those gifts. The story continued. He sent the Holy Spirit to be with his his followers at Pentecost, and he gave them the necessary means to follow his ways. And that's that we believe the fulfillment of that promise of the new heart and the new spirit. And so it's in a sense, as Blessed Columbo teaches, impossible to follow his ways and his, his example, his high example, and his teachings without the means given to do so. And so the importance of appreciating those means. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about grace. And so just a little proof text of the means is that he chose us, each of us, to be an adopted son and daughter, or daughter, to be incorporated into all that Christ has to give to us as the Son. In Ephesians 1, 5 to 5-6, we, we read, He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved." And the Church extends this gift of adopted sonship and daughtership to the whole world. There's no longer just one chosen people. It's for everyone to be incorporated into it, into whatever these blessings are, to whatever these gifts are. Just pausing for a second to hear a little from Marmion on the topic of divine adoption. This is one of his favorite topics. In a very real, a very true sense, we are divinely begotten by grace. With the Word we can say, O Father, I am your Son. I have come forth from you. The Word says this necessarily by right, he being of his essence God's only Son but we we can only say it through grace in our capacity of adopted children. The Word says it from all eternity, but we say it in the sphere of time, though the decree of that destiny is eternal. For the Word, what he says indicates no more than a relation of origin with the Father. For us, there is an added relation of dependence. But for us, as for him, it is a true childship, We are, by grace, God's children. The Father wills that, despite our unworthiness, we give him the name of Father. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's a quote of Galatians 4, 6 at the end. From the time we've been very little, we've appreciated all the gifts about heaven. And I dare say that from time to time, we forget these gifts of divine adoption and what it means to truly pray as a beloved son or daughter. And in a sense, we'll go into this much later in the course, as a favorite son or daughter with all that unique love of the Father. And in a sense to say, be a father to me in this prayer. You know, that richness of, of, a, of really appreciating what God's given us in divine adoption. When we talk about the new heart and the new spirit, we're talking about God being at work in a person's life. We're talking about what, what Catholics call grace, and here's a little proof text from Second Peter, chapter one, three to four on it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, though the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature." It's that great share in the divine nature that we believe God grants us for our help here and now, today. And if we're going to loosely define this, let's just stay away from the technical terms for a second and just say the power of God at work in a person. And we see an easy context in which to recognize this is a 12 step program a graduate of a 12-step program will very easily talk about that higher power at work to save a person from addiction. And we can very easily say, yes, we think God's there at that program to save people from addiction. But what we don't as often do is say, and he's here today for me (laughs) to save me in my, not necessarily that level of problem, but in my own struggles, in my own problems. I think that any, you have to have this notion of God wants to help, bless from a deep part of ourselves in order to have that deeper confidence in Him and in His help. And just as a word, we're going to call that grace. Summing up the divine plan in its practical application for our lives is this one little line from 1 Thessalonians 4, 3b. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So this means, in short, that God wants you to thrive, you to be the best version of you, you to have all those divine gifts activated in your life in the unique way that he wants to reactivate his life in you. If God is willing this, His will is an act, He's constantly working on it, He's constantly reworking on it as often as He needs to, to make you from this point forward the best version of you. That's beautiful. And if we sum up the divine plan in a practical way, let's take confidence in that truth, in that fact. But that now brings us to our response, which is the second half of the paper. So if we have all these graces, and one thing Marmion's good at drawing out is that he says that, you know, of course at baptism we've received this divine adoption and we've received the Holy Spirit. Um, but Marmion's also quick to point out that at every Mass, there are enough graces to make each of us into saints. We believe there's the full power of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus on offer, and we're communicating in that power. And if that's the case, well, I may be the one that's putting obstacles to that power being fully at work in me if I didn't wake up as a saint this morning. So now we get to turn to our response to all these gifts and all these graces, the second half of our context for spirituality. And here we're going to think of an adult convert for just a little bit. These, These categories are a little bit logical distinctions, but they help to just kind of split things into categories. We're going to first talk about one's exterior response to God, anything that someone can see. Then we're going to talk about the interior side of one's response to God. Anything you can't see, obviously these overlap, but this will at least break up the conversation a little bit for us. As an adult convert, again, just to take an adult convert as a way of categorizing information, the first thing that a person does is learn about God, right? So if they don't know anything about God, you learn about God. Maybe you study a little bit of apologetics, fundamental theology, like why even to believe in God? Why even to think of God's ways? You may start to learn a little bit more and say, I want to learn a little bit more about God's ways. You may start to learn catechism or dogma or uh, various aspects of theology. You may study the Bible. You may do all kinds of different things. But that's all in this kind of intellectual conformity to Christ. That's just a general category. And then the adult convert may say, okay, I'm willing to enter a church or participate in a church, right? And so you have the next step of entering a church, uh, which I'm going to say sacramental conformity to Christ. You choose baptism, you choose to become an adopted son or daughter of God, you choose all the gifts that come along with that. And that means incorporation into a community, into a family. And then, of course, there's a lot more to the standard sacramental life of the Church. But I'm just saying again, this is a context we know, right? It's just not to forget about this context. It's just part of the context that is integral to spirituality. And it's important to remember, perhaps not in this room, but outside of here, there are a lot of people who say that they're spiritual but not religious, that they're spiritual without the confines of a church that they're spiritual without incorporation into the divided option. And there could be graces. Uh, We we believe there are graces outside the church and we don't limit God to what he's going to do, but we do believe that there's a revealed way that he wants to work in our lives. So sacramental conformity to Christ. But then church doesn't just end on Sunday at 10 p.m. It continues throughout the week. It's just another part of our context that We have a behavioral conformity to Christ, morality. We have all those aspects of living this out day by day, week by week. And we all know this aspect of it. We we learned this when we were very young, probably. That's so much to say that that's the exterior response to God. And that's what we're not talking about in this course. That's what we're setting aside is what we hope that you learned a long time ago. And now we're going to turn to what's the interior response to God. So, so then what is this interior life? So, first, you know, we choose interiorly the motives for our actions, the reasons for our life, the purpose of our life. We choose to pray or not pray, or how we pray, to have that friendship with God, to seek that friendship with God. And so, this is the domain of spiritual theology how to grow once you're kind of generally into the christian community how to grow in the spirit how to let these blessings flow more fully usually for the adult you know who's gotten to a class like this they know that basic behavioral conformity to christ that basic moral code they want to remove those kind of deeper interior resistances they have to god's flowing in their lives and so we're focused on that part of the category and so you see the other classes that are coming up prayer let Jesus inspire you so we're going to talk about listening to God in Lectio Divina we're going to talk about the practice of the presence of God and how to do that day by day We can also talk about very practical prayers. I mean, while we're on the category of exterior response to God, prayers should be entering every day in every way. So as an aside, you know, we should find little prayers to say during our work or during our interactions with people interiorly. You know, we should be saying from time to time, come Holy Spirit, help me with this relationship, help me with this interaction, help me with this difficult you know, job I've got to do, project I've got to do. Inspire me on how to do any of this. Uh, when I was in the work world, I recognized that when you, the phone rings, you've got about three, four seconds until you have to answer. Right? You're, you've already put behind whatever you were once doing, and you can say in those three or four seconds, "Come, Holy Spirit, be with me, help me," and pick up the phone. And then that just reminds you periodically through the day to keep prayer part of your day. So, prayer throughout the day, but in prayer in this class, we're going to talk really about mental prayer. What it means, not in a big church setting, liturgical prayers, wonderful, beautiful, sacraments are amazing, but what it means to be quiet with God alone, more or less. That's kind of our category of that interior response to God. Conversion, let Jesus direct you, that's not, don't be afraid on that one, actually. That's more of a question of how do we grow over our life in this relationship with God. So the, the saints have laid out that there is kind of a way of growing over time, that our prayer changes over time, and that we should expect our prayer to change over time. And so the type of prayer you may have done 20 years ago isn't the type of prayer you want to do today. Or maybe you're ready to try a new type of prayer. We're going to talk about prayers being different for different temperaments, different people having different inclinations, and finding the prayer that works for you. I had a friend who once said that, oh, Father Cashin, I was doing Lexio Divina, and I stopped to pray after about you know a minute or two. And I said, well, the method's just there to help you to pray, right? So uh, find the prayer that works for you. Humility and confidence—those, these are the ones that Marmion's really great about, and that the whole third chapter of the book, *The Grace of Nothingness: Navigating the Spiritual Life with Blessed Columba Marmion*, is on this dual, co- this dual combination of a humble confidence or a confident humility, whichever one you want to take. Um, these are the, the two dispositions that the great spiritual writers say are the combination for opening up the interior life. These are the, the combination you need to go deep into the purification and deeper into the trust and confidence in God and in kind of all the aspects of your life. So when we're talking about opening up that interior aspect of one's response to God, those are the two they're not overly complicated i mean we, we will have time to like go through them in detail but it's a rather simple approach of a humble confidence in god and so we'll, we'll have time to take each of those in stride and, and how they interact and how they necessarily interact because without either of them uh, you can go astray too much confidence and you can go into presumption and too much humility, you can go into confusion, discouragement, despair. And you can go back and forth between the two, plenty of times, before you get the balance correct. Our final one is about union. So, let Jesus inhabit you. And it is about the fruits of what we're talking about, and what could be expected, and what's the authentic fruits to expect, and what are some perhaps mistaken fruits to expect, and how the gifts of the Spirit can become more prevalent in one's pers- a person's life at that point. Before taking questions, I want to close with just this beautiful quote from Marmion that I think encapsulates his simple approach. It's, a, it's in a letter of spiritual direction. Oh, my dear child, I would wish to engrave on your heart in letters of gold this truth, that no matter how great our misery, we are infinitely rich in Jesus Christ, if we unite with him, if we lean on him, if we realize constantly by a firm living faith that all the value of our prayer and of all that we do comes from his merits in us. All this is contained in two texts, Without me you can do nothing, John 15:5, And I can do all things in him who strengthens me, Philippians 4:13. so that 's the set piece uh, now i 'm happy to take any questions that you want, and please like d- go ahead like i, I don't i don 't mind what the question is if it 's too hard i 'll just not oh, i 'll just f- uh, yeah great question so <laughs> a lot of people his, a lot of people don 't know him. He was an Irishman who becomes a monk in a, a, a Belgian Abbey and married Sue he lives from 1858 to 1923, um, he's a Benedictine monk who becomes a great spiritual author of his time. His books are all still in print uh, 99 years later, uh, which is a great testament to his, his impact. Um, I argue in the book that he was influenced by Saint Therese of Lucieux, who happens to be my personal favorite saint, uh, who I think is the model for contemporary Christians. And he was influential in getting her uh, canonized. In fact, the Pope sought his opinion on whether to canonize Saint Therese, and um, and then also carrying the thread forward, he was influential on Mother Teresa, uh, and his writings are very influential on her. And so, in Chapter Three, there's a little bit of her reflecting on him. And then also, my director in Rome is friends with her, so then they reflect on the same topic. So that's, that's a wonderful thread there. So he, it's really more of, a, of an intellectual tracing of his writings about the spiritual life. Uh, he, he was notable, one of his great acts of courage is that during the First World War, he snuck a good portion of his monastery through the lines, the young men, to get them out over to Ireland. So, that they wouldn't all starve in the monastery. So, a man of great action as well. It's just we don't have a lot of those vignettes about great action in his life. That happens to be one of the, the primary ones. So, um, another little story about Marmion is that he was kind of an outsider in his monastery as an Irishman. So, he was a big man. And, and he didn't speak the local dialect in Belgium. His mother was French, so he spoke French very well, but not the local dialect. So when he was a young priest, they called for a, a, a mission giver to the parish, like four nights in the parish to talks. And, and they said, Well, we only have this Irishman to send you. Uh, and they said, Okay, well, fine. And, and then the year later, they called back and said, can we have the Irishman again? And the abbot says, well, we have all these other priests on offer now. And they said, no, we'd really like to have him back again. Um, he was known to be very gregarious, uh, lots of stories, um, but they don't find their way into the books because his ghostwriter didn't write them down. He just wrote the content down. So. Tell us about the book, because we didn't know the book. Sure. Well, y- you don't have to do anything to come to any of these classes. I hope that each of them are intelligible on their own. We have a donor, so if anyone you know, wants a book and doesn't have the ability to pick up one up, uh, a donor is provided for those. There's books in there. If you don't have a book and you want to pick one up and you want to give me 18 or $20 for it, that would be welcome as well. Um, but I hope everyone, if you're going to sit here in these, be- in these discussions, please, you know, I want you to have a book uh, one way or the other. Um, the books are right around the corner. Yeah. And um, so we're not going chapter by chapter through the book. The talks are, are a little bit more targeted and uh, I think more accessible than the book. Uh, the big part is chapter three, is the, the practical takeaway of, of the book. And so that's the, the, the part that we'll go into the most detail in. Um, but, um, so, The Grace of Nothingness Navigating the Spiritual Life with Blessed Columbo Marmion. So he's, he's a great, he's a great of, our, of our tradition. So he's the most contemporary Benedictine playbook for the spiritual life. What was your with him? Him? So I wasn't attracted to him, to tell you the, <laughs> the real case. I know a few of you have heard me say this, but I just wanted to read the, the great doctors of the church on prayer, and I wasn't interested in a 20th century theologian. Um, just because I thought, well, I'll wait for him to be tried and true, and I just want to listen to the greats. Um, But Cardinal Burke kept pestering me to read him, uh, and I didn't. And eventually he puts a book in my hand and says, please read this, (laughs) and I still didn't. (laughs) And I, I eventually did pick it up and learn that he was doing exactly what I was trying to do. He was just much better at it. And he was this great synthesis of the greats. Uh, And especially, like I said, I I appreciate St. Therese very highly, and she's influenced my field of spiritual theology very deeply. Um, you changed the whole field, really. Uh, And he's one of the very first to incorporate her, not directly, but her her theories into a greater whole. So he was a dogmatic theologian. He's very good about dogmatic theology. He's very good about grace. Uh, But then he's able to situate her practical insights and advice into a greater whole. Because she, she just wrote an autobiography, right? It, it's not something that you could easily kind of grasp what the actual practical takeaways are. You can see these beautiful parts, but he kind of taught it is, is the reason why I think he was special. How does he compare to Zaynick? So uh, St. Ignatius very Ignatian, um, is very Jesuit, right? So the leader, he focuses in prayer, for example, the Jesuits focus on um, putting yourself into a, like a biblical story, like very imaginative, right? So how do you smell the smells or be one of the characters in one of Jesus' stories, uh, which is a form of meditation that a lot of people like and gravitate towards. Um, we tend to be more listening to the Bible, and you can incorporate that if you want. So we tend to focus less on the imagination as the Jesuits would or as St. Ignatius would. St. Ignatius focused on um, practical ways of conversion. I, would, I think that's a fair way of discernment of spirits as well. Um, and stole all that from the Benedictines, but that's okay. <laughs> um, he spent a lot of time in a Benedictine monastery right before he did that. Um, but no, he, he had a novel way of doing that. So that's, that's inspired many. Uh, I would say the Jesuits. This is a broad statement on Jesuits. They um, they focus much more on the practical application in the real world of theology, and were a little bit more about the interior life. I know that we would maybe, if I had a Jesuit, he would kind of probably take umbrage with that, um, and um, also. On a broad scale, Jesuits tend to try to be a little bit way of innovating and incorporating new ways of thought into theology, testing new things, whereas Benedictines tend to be much more tried and true. Like, like We'll think, like, okay, the Jesuits have had 500 years. We can give them another 1,000 and see if they last, right? You know, like, But like whatever has been good for us for a long time is, worth, is, is, is good enough for my life as kind of a Jesuit or is it kind of a Benedictine way. We're, we're less pushing the envelope and more staying within what is most tried and true. Uh, Father, will you the question for the for the, uh, the question was, how yeah. is this similar or different than St. Ignatius of Loyola? Does God allow our lives to be hard so that we do pray? Um, yes, is going to be my answer on that. Only because if you're not praying, you're not getting the graces necessary. Again, you're putting an obstacle to those graces at work in your life. So you're, you're actually already making your life a little hard on your own. right? Because you're not getting the little inspirations on how to do things. You're not getting the extra help and the, and the, and the um, kind of way of pulling them off and doing them with uh, resilience and such. And um, it's not that it's like a punishment. It's just that you're not availing yourself of all that. You're making things a little bit harder than they need to be. And so if you do turn to prayer, you would hopefully be... Um, be able to do things a little bit more effectively efficiently you may get greater trials to then bear if you're able to bear them all so it's it's gonna it's not going to be clear whether it's you know actually easier or not does that help Yeah. could you help to put the context into the whole concept of nothingness and why would god want us to have that feeling right so, excellent. So, the, the base text here is, is Jesus saying in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Okay? Uh, the saints over time have said, they've kind of morphed that into I am nothing with kind of a theology of grace and merits and attributing the good things in their life to God. It's not that there aren't good things in their life. In fact, they can say, there are very great things in their life. We can think of Mother Teresa being a worldwide example of Christianity, picking lepers up off of the the um, streets, you know, years and years at a time, and still saying, I'm just an instrument in God's hands. It's, it's much more along those lines of attributing to God the real things that are active in our lives, um, but saying that's God working within us, and thanks be to God for that. So that's the other side of... Uh, with God, we can do all things, right? So if God helps us do all things, hopefully we do attribute it some to Him, if not all to Him. And if you attribute it all to Him and say, well, this is God working through me, you've got little left to attribute merely to yourself. Um, that, that, that's kind of the, the theory of, of grace and merits there in a nutshell. Uh, we'll go a little bit more into that too. Um, but it's definitely not a Buddhist, you know, no- nothingness. It's not a void. So if if you're if you're trusting in God for these blessings, this fatherly path of blessings in your life, he shouldn't leave you in a void. Right? So that's that's a key, like when we're talking about confidence in God, God, we're talking like God's not going to leave me in a void. He's going to fill me with blessings. And then how do I just open up the path for those blessings as best as possible? Gene, you said feeling And the other side of the coin is, if we're going to take prayer seriously, sometimes God draws close, and the feeling of God drawing close is we feel kind of small, you know, right? You know, so you can have the feeling of feeling kind of small, but that may not be a bad thing in your relationship with God. It sometimes means God's getting pretty close. Um, But then I think the saints use this to kind of vent that feeling, right? If he's close, you're also going to be like, "Ed, thanks for working in my life, and all the ways that you're working in my life, (laughs) you know, and I'm nothing without you, and thanks for all that that you're doing." Um, But this is not low self-esteem. This is not, you know, a low sense of self. Uh, I think if you look over the saints, you see heroic people of deep charity who are using these expressions over and over again. So the question is, why does sanctification seem easier for some, or not seem equal? Um, Depending on life experience. The the one thing is, I I mean, I can't answer for God. Like, if God wants to just fill some saint with graces from childhood on, Mm -hmm. that's his that's his grace, right? Like. You know, it's, it's like the labor, like you come at the end of the day and you get the same pay. But, you know, the guy who worked all day long got the same pay, too. But that's that's God's thing. Like, it's not my thing. Right. Um, are there ways of making it easier? Our response. Well, that's what we're talking about. Right. So um, if it's less about winning God or striving to God and more about surrendering to God or let God bestow it all on us. So that's going to be one of those changes that that this kind of spirituality is going to propose. That's where the humility comes in. Is it's not winning God, it's letting God more fully into into my life. Uh, and then how do I, right, do that? Um, there's a wonderful quote by Marmion. He says, well, it's like it's not hard to find. Uh, he says that many people advance. It's exactly on what you are talking about. He said many people advance, but rather limpingly. Uh, but then how do we um, overcome that? I just had it this afternoon, so I know I can find it. One must not, before beginning any action, give in to nature, but first unite oneself to our Lord. Before taking up an occupation, kneel down at Christ's feet and say to him, My Jesus, I leave there my natural activity. I want to do this solely for you, and I unite myself to you. And if during the occupation you feel that you are letting yourself be carried away by nature, go back and act to our Lord. It must not be Cashin who is acting, for that would be good for nothing, but it must be Jesus who acts through Cashin then it would be excellent. There are some people who have a great deal of activity. They pray, mortify themselves, and give themselves up to good works. They advance, but rather limpingly, because their activity is partly human. There are others whom God has taken in hand, and they advance very quickly, because he himself acts in them. But before reaching the second state, there is much to suffer. For God must first make the soul feel that she is nothing and can do nothing. And she must needs be able to say, in all sincerity, I am brought to nothing. And I knew not. I am became as a beast before thee. So that's page 90. And 90, page 90. So... Um, and then that doesn't yet get into how you get filled, right? So the other idea, just real quick, um, we always want to, like, come bring a God a gift, right? Like, I gave you a book. Look, isn't that great, you know? But what God really wants is us to come with empty hands so as to be filled. So that's St. Therese's great re-expression of, this, of this, this, this theology of nothingness. Come to God with empty hands and expect to be filled. And so, all too often, the hands aren't getting filled because they're filled already. So there's the little turn that we're hoping to move towards. This was my tension with God. So that that's the real behind every theologian, there is his own personal tension with God. The person has to work out, and this is what I had to work out. I kept trying to bring God gifts. I kept advancing but rather limpidly and I needed to learn to <laughs> come with empty hands and say, Please fill them and you know, be a father to me in this, you know, rather than try to control it myself or do it myself. So the whole book is about overcoming self reliance, that self reliant approach of I got this God or I'm gonna do this for you and rather coming with like, okay, how do you want to use me today? What is that? <laughs> you know, let's go do that. <laughs> you know. Um, so the question is uh, as we're growing in our kind of just overall conformity to Christ, can we also work on the interior life at the same time? And is that fair? Uh, more or less if someone's. Can, is there still a benefit here of focusing on the interior life, even if you're struggling in some ways? <laughs> um, Yes. I mean, like I said, these were kind of logical distinctions to just kind of orient us. Uh, so, you know, prayer is going to be most helpful no matter what. Right? This notion of a humbler, more confident prayer is going to help you no matter what. Right? This this notion of help me in whatever I'm struggling with is going to help you no, like no matter what, rather than like, you know, that's the whole, like, 12-step higher power thing, right? You can't liberate yourself, and the more you try to liberate yourself, that doesn't work. It's not until you say, look, I need you to, to do this for me. So it's going it's to help no matter what. Does that make sense? Um, I, I do, th- while they are very much overlapped, I do think there's at least... A logical and a realistic expectation that first you kind of do the entry into the church type stuff, uh, and then you work with all the graces of divine adoption. You know, um, but um, but you know they do overlap. Uh, it is also true that it tends to be a little bit more older, more mature people that focus on the interior life. You tend not to even see it or focus on it. Until you've gotten through that exterior purification for a while, does that make sense? Um, So they tend to be people who are already trained in the life of charity, uh, and then want to take the next step in their relationship with God. So in that sense, it also tends to be a topic that happens a little bit later. But that doesn't mean that it has to. Does that like same kind of question? So is are the clergy using the twelve steps often? Because we've suddenly become open to them, and, and the power of using it, or are we using it more often because we think it's most applicable to people today? Um, I would actually step a little bit further back from both of those comments. Uh, I think if you did research into it, the 12 steps are based on Catholic theology. You know, they're just kind of stripped away of of the words like grace and such, or of the Ignatian model of conversion, uh, and discernment of spirits, and so. Um, I think the basis is already there and, and so um, I use it today because I think a lot of people have not heard about grace in a long time and have not thought about grace in a long time and so it's a one of those easy ways that almost everyone in the room could say yeah higher power at work right and that also sp- kind of cuts through Kind of doctrinal confusion, like you don't get caught up into scholastic. Oh, is that actual grace or is that prevenient grace? Or like we, I didn't use any of those categories, right? It's just God's power at work. I mean, I'm not negating them, and also, I think every Christian out there believes that God's power is at work in us in some way, even if they use grace in a different way. So that again allows us to have a, like a nice, easy, common term, at least for a thing that I think everyone recognizes. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, Fred asks, kind of, where did this whole theology of nothingness begin? And the chapter 2 is entirely about that. Um, So, you know, um, there are different answers. I mean, I I think the very first person to use it is a person called St. Barstinophius, who was over in 5th or 6th century, I think early 6th century in... um, Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, I think I roughly put him in Jerusalem in the Holy Land or so, um, and he's the very first person I can track it to. And, and it's interesting that he um, uses it in an Eastern c- Christian context, which is apart from the Vulgate Bible. And the Vulgate Bible kind of has translations that are inclined in this direction. So it's interesting that he's independent of that. Um, I think that the there was a great controversy about pelagian thought you could win god and we easily rejected that but then still today the biggest heresy is probably semi-pelagianism which says that can can you either initiate something and then god completes it in your life or can god complete something and you can kind of bring it to fruition in your life and and the real answer that saint augustine fought for And one with was that God uh, begins, sustains, and completes every godly act in our life, every meritorious act in our life. Um, And it was much more when people started to think about that, and the implications of that. That that they really started to think about this topic much more in a practical spirituality. Um, But you could look at it's it's harder to point in St. Paul, but you could possibly point in parts of St. Paul. Then it certainly comes up in St. Bernard. It certainly comes up in the church's liturgies of um, Pentecost. So it's it's instilled in the in the church's liturgies of Pentecost by the eleventh century, Uh, and then almost every great saint from then will use it. So like doctors of the church, you've got St. Catherine of Siena. You've got, um, you know. St. John of the Cross, the Carmelites, St. Teresa of Avila. You've got um, over St. Francis de Sales and a whole different um, tradition. You've got St. Francis talking about very similar things. You've got Thomas Aquinas talking about it. So it it, it gets very, after St. Bernard, the gates, I think, open as a floodgate at that point because he was so influential. Maybe St. Augustine, but I can't track it down to St. Augustine. Like, there are things in his writing that are so similar that it's, like, almost there, but it's not explicitly the same. God would answer that. Yeah, I mean, so Gene asks, like, isn't this more helpful for young people than... I mean, obviously, older people gravitate to it, but... Um, I mean, I teach this to young people. We teach grace to young people. We've always have. But I think it's too much of a... Intellectual topic, right? Uh, And I teach it as a practical topic. um, Just as a little history lesson, very quick. It wasn't until the mid 20th century that my discipline, spiritual theology, broke off from morality and had its own discipline. Um, So you have the mid 20th century, the very first chair of spiritual theology in Garrigou Lagrange at the Angelicum where I studied. And you had only one faculty of it, right? Giving faculties for a while. And then eventually, some of the other major universities started with the same department with a faculty in it. Um, and it took almost till today for someone like me to now come apply it at the, at the high school level, right? It's, it's, you've had to get the faculties out to all the seminaries. You had to get the, the tr- people trained out to those seminaries first and then get them into the parishes, then get them into the schools. So, you know, a practical takeaway is that in the Vatican II, they define the universal call to holiness, right? So, for the very first time, they say that everyone is called to the fullness of these blessings, no matter who you are. Like, it's there as your adopted son and daughter of God. You can have this union with God, um, and that was because of that first chair of spiritual theology. He, his debate with the Jesuits, who said no, uh, and the Dominicans and the Benedictines said yes. We won, and um, thanks be to God for that. And um, but that's a, that's a very practical takeaway, and then it actually gets put into dogma. And, and again, we're still unpacking Vatican II. So, um, uh, so for the very first time, we're kind of applying it in a practical application to everyone and that new application helps young people grab onto it a lot more easily so this isn't the 16 different ways of slicing up grace this is how do you want god to work in your life so there are stories of converts who struggle with the whole thing right Right. like c.s lewis and it shows how and he became so great right so it shows how even if we're struggling, it, once you remove those obstacles, you could reach your full potential of who you're supposed to be as a son or daughter of God, and that's in, in our own unique ways. We're not all blessed like C.S. Lewis. He has great blessings of nature, but and grace builds upon nature. But uh, it does give us confidence that other people have struggled, and then when you remove the obstacles, hopefully in this simple way, easily applicable way the power of God can flow more fully in our lives. So, I've kept you here plenty long. If anyone else wants to ask questions afterwards, I'm happy to stay behind. Uh, Again, we've got five other classes. You're welcome back. And um, we'll go into prayer next time. And uh, the, the, the section about... Insinu patris in the book, which is the only thing that's uh, that's applicable for the next one, and that one is on. Uh, it's not listed in the table of contents. It's somewhere. There, <laughs> it's somewhere there in having confidence in God of one nineteen. There's a there's a subsection called insinu patris in the persevering confidence section, and that's Marmion's phrase for. An old practice called the practice of the presence of God, how to recognize God's with us at all times. We're going to do that and we're going to do Lexia Divina next time so that you can get some real practical takeaways on prayer. Uh, And then the conversion, I believe, follows that. And uh, that's just going to map out, again, how we grow over time and how our prayer changes over time. Um, So that's going to just lay a groundwork for then having a deeper conversation about this humble confidence and how that that plays out in different stages of life and in different walks in life so thanks guys i'll stay behind so